Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. Thank you so much for listening. This is episode one of The Journey. The niche of this podcast is me. The 10-word description of this podcast is Chris Grace interviews people, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. There you go. Put that in your iTunes and smoke it. Hey, listen, I'm very excited about our first guest of the show ever. His name is Dan Heath. He and I have been friends since junior high, and this podcast is not just me interviewing friends of mine from junior high, although that would be a good show. Dan has also written several New York Times bestsellers. Uh, He co-wrote a book called Made to Stick, which was quite influential in the business world. And his latest book is called Upstream, which is about thinking about your problems in a slightly different way, maybe anticipating issues and complications and trying to be forward thinking and take care of things before they get exponentially complicated and exponentially expensive and a variety of other things. It's a great book. Go read it. In fact, uh, I'll be giving away a copy of the book at my community that I've launched with this podcast. If you go to club.chrisgrace.com, you can go there and register uh, and enter a contest to get a free copy of the book. Please do that. Uh, You can email me at podcast at chrisgrace.com and, you know, subscribe, tell your friends, give us a five-star rating. And uh, come to theclub.chrisgrace.com. Come talk about the show. Come talk about what you think about Dan's work, uh, what you think about my life. (laughs) You know, come tell me everything you feel like telling me personally. Um, All right, that's enough admin. Here's the the promise I'm going to make you. I'm going to, in these episodes, I'm going to try to keep the admin short at the beginning of the shows because I listen to a lot of podcasts and I skip the first couple minutes because they're always rambling about their own life, right? I'm going to ramble about my life at the end of these podcasts. So you can just get right in, get right to the interview, which is about to start in about 10 seconds. And then if you want to hear what's going on with me in my life, that'll be at the end of the show. And then if you don't want to hear that, you can just delete that episode right out your phone right there. Okay. So anyway, let's get to the interview uh, with Dan Heath. Uh, All right. My first guest for the podcast ever is somebody I have known for a long time. He is a best-selling author. He works at Duke University. Uh, He is a Texan. I don't know if he's still an Aggies fan or not, but, uh, and more, most importantly, he and I were both editor-in-chief of our school newspaper uh, in Clear Lake, Texas. Uh, Please welcome to the podcast, Dan Heath. Hey, Chris. Great to be with you. Am I really the first guest? Uh, Yeah. Well, you're the first one I'm interviewing, so I don't see why not. You're easily the most famous author that I know. Yeah. I really want to be the first guest. I want, I want to put my stamp on this thing. That can easily be arranged. <laughs> uh, we were we were two of eight, I think, editors in chief. <laughs> I I know there was a very competitive editorial process that year, as I recall, and our journalism teacher ultimately decided everybody's a winner. Everybody gets a trophy, and so we had like an eight-headed hydra of editorial leadership. Also, that worked out fine, actually. The whole, like, uh, you know, I can't decide to just give everybody an accolade. It's not like any college was checking, like, wait a minute. Were you the sole (laughs) editor-in-chief of that paper? (laughs) It looked great on all of our resumes. It's so true. It was like a win-win. Plus, he, like, bought a bunch of extra ownership on the paper. And, you know, I was just thinking about that stuff the other day because our high school just had its 50th anniversary 
And um, I was thinking about just how archaic the technology was when we started. This is where we're going to annoy like all of your younger listeners because we're going to do one of those old man like this is the way things used to work. Yeah, just to give a little context, Dan and I both went to Clear Lake High School in Houston, Texas. And uh, you're, I think you're, I think we were at the sweet spot because we had both the old and the new technology. We had a foot in each, two different eras. And, and just to I think like a 25-year-old listening to this will believe this, but when we started putting together the newspaper, obviously it was pre-computer, and, and we would literally like type out the stories on a typewriter, but to get the justified columns that you see in newspapers, you would have to manually like game out how many spaces to put between words. Like, yes. So you had to start by handwriting the story into a grid paper to do that kind of manual spacing. And then you had to replicate what you had written out on the typewriter. And then you had to cut it out with an exacto and glue it. I mean, literally glue it down <laughs> to like a proof with like a glue stick. And then if you wanted a headline on your story, you know, obviously typewriters can't do a big font. So you had to get this press type stuff that was basically like a temporary tattoo thing. Like you, you sort of if you wanted an A, you would scratch an A off onto the page proof. With a little metal ball. With a little metal ball. Why didn't we just say, like, we're okay with left justification? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so true. We'll be the paper that just is fine with left justification. <laughs> How many thousands of human hours were wasted, like, just manually inserting spaces into a grid paper? Well, and also, it didn't always work out correctly. Like, you didn't always have... It didn't work. It's like sometimes you'd have to do uneven kind of white space. Well, and, and the thing about justification is it's very um, um, error unforgiving. You know what I mean? Because if it's like it's straight, your eyes are immediately drawn to the one row where it was like one character off. And so you'd have to redo it. Yeah. I wish we could go back in time and rally for left justification. In a way, I wonder if uh, that extra step of the writing out of the grid served as like an extra draft that paid off in terms of the quality of our of our work. Yeah, maybe. Oh, well, because I, I wonder, I, there had to have been, because I'm a fundamentally lazy person, there had to be times where I just chose a different word because it fit better. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start, you start gaming the system. And then when we were in high school, so, you know, we were from the exacto and glue stick era. And then all of a sudden, we come in one day and there's like this holy glow around this bizarre machine called a Macintosh Classic. And I, I think you and I probably had the greatest love affair with that device. And so it's like all of a sudden for the first time we could like lay out stories on the computer. You would set it to render and it would be like a seven hour process. So you'd come back the next morning and then there'd be an error. So you'd start again. It's like... But it was the glory days. Well, uh, but still with one foot in each era, we still had to cut them out and paste them down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Like yeah, that, well, all... that was crazy. It's like we weren't able to print like a multi-column layout. <laughs> that, yeah, you know, I'd forgotten that, that we, yeah, we still had to go through the page proof. Yeah. What was the deal with photos? Didn't we just leave holes in the page proofs for photos and somehow that came in in the printing process or something? Or how did that work? Yeah, you know what? I think that is what it was. I remember, I feel like we left red transparent film where the photos would go. That sounds right. Yep. And then at some point it was taken to the printers. At that point, we were, I mean, at that point we were as editors in chief focusing on, of course, strategy for the next issue. 
you know. Because <laughs> we were we were just doing high level stuff. There's right. a lot of delegation involved. There's a lot of who's going to the football game to cover the next football game <laughs> strategy <laughs> going on. I feel a lot of nostalgia for the school newspaper. Like uh I I, I mean, even over just clearly pointless stuff, like when you would take an exact like you catch a typo on the page proof, which is you know, way too late to be catching it. But then like to be able to take an exacto and like manually pluck in an oh, S, yeah. you know, instead of an N or whatever the error was. Right. Like that that just felt good as a sixteen year old to have that kind of power and agency. Yeah, and also the uh the uh the controversy I caused in a music review when I said that Phil Collins was not a good uh, drummer. <laughs> was that was that a big blowback? Not only was did multiple other students tell me I was wrong, like in a class, but the, our journalism teacher told me I was had gone over the line with that comment. <laughs> did he really? Yeah, he did. He, he like, got like, a private conversation like, Chris, I mean, you know, we got to toe the line in journalism. <laughs> the great thing about our um, music reviews over the years is I remember at some point you reviewed Revolver, which is just classic. <laughs> right. I reviewed the ones I can remember. I reviewed XTC, Oranges and Lemons. I reviewed By the Light of the Moon by Los Lobos. And they, uh, to, to, to his credit, uh, some of those were like I was introduced to the band XTC by our journalism teacher. And I was introduced um, to it by you, honestly. And so I want to thank you for that. I, I, really, <laughs> I went through a long XTC era. Also, are you, uh, my memory is that your family was like a Texas A&M family. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I was the, I was the black sheep of the family. I went to UT. So all through school, I was like an Aggie by default. And then it turned out I went to the arch rival, which of course was just heretical in the Heath clan, but I had threatened to go to Berkeley. So for them, it was like, it was a big improvement because <laughs> Berkeley was basically like Satan University in their eyes. I mean, at least you're still a Texan at that point. You're not some San Francisco hippie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much it. That's our update of the, uh, the Clear Lake High School newspaper uh then uh, that's what this podcast is, just catching up with people that worked at that paper. It's a limited run series. You're going to go through all eight editors. <laughs> well, here's the thing. If you haven't followed Dan's career over the years, Dan is a best-selling author. He's written a bunch of books with his brother, Chip. He also wrote a book on his own. That's That sounds weird the way I said that. You know, he wrote a whole book by himself. <laughs> um, but he wrote a book called Upstream that came out, I think, in 2020, um, right before the pandemic happened. It was perfectly timed for release in March 2020, where everyone's appetite for a new book was at its maximum. I, first of all, I highly recommend it. I think it's really interesting. And I figure you must have, I mean, I almost feel like you must have like an upstream two ready to not like bubbling around in your head based on what's happened the last couple of years. Just as a quick summary of the book, uh, this is, I'll give you my summary. You tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, the book just kind of feels like, hey, you should look. Uh, at sort of earlier points in a system to find out better spots for you to like leverage uh, things so you get better outcomes. <laughs> I mean, that seems like it's at a reasonable um, summary of the book. No, well said, well said. And and I think I can give uh, listeners the gist just by sharing a 45 second parable that the book starts with. This famous parable goes like this. You and a friend are having a picnic beside a river, as friends do. You hear a shout from behind you in the direction of the river. You look back. There's a child thrashing around in the river, apparently drowning. So you both, you know, dive in. You fish out the child. You rescue them. Just as you're starting to calm down a bit, you hear a second shout. 
Now it's another child, also apparently drowning. So right back in you go, you save that child. Well, now it's two kids in the river. And so you're, you're in and you're out and you're saving lives and you're starting to get exhausted from the work. And then you notice your friend swimming to the shore, stepping out and starting to walk away as though to leave you alone. And you say, hey, where are you going, man? I can't do all this life-saving work by myself. And your friend says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. And I heard that parable told maybe 13, 14 years ago, and it just it just really stuck with me. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a corny, weird parable, but I think it just captures so well the trap that we always find ourselves in of, you know, reacting to problems as they emerge and putting out fires, react, react, react. And we so rarely make the space devote the resources we need to get upstream and tackle things at their root. And certainly, you know, COVID, we probably don't need to revisit that whole tale, but was a perfect example where for years and years and years and years, everybody who had looked at pandemics carefully said, there's more coming. They could be worse. They could be big, could be a version of the avian flu. And and plans were scripted and lobbying was done. And ultimately, very little was done in the way of prep work. And so the book is really about Number one, why going upstream is so important, which may be somewhat self-evident. But what I learned as I got into the book, when I came to the topic, I was thinking, this is going to be a book about how stupid we are not to do upstream work and what a great payoff it has. And as I really dug into it, I came to appreciate just why it's as hard as it is. And there's a lot of really subtle things that you have to do as an upstream leader that you don't as a downstream leader. If you're the person fishing the drowning kid out of the water... Like, you're a hero immediately. You're the kid's hero. You're the kid's parent's hero. You're written about in the newspaper, and people are clapping you on the back, and look at what you did. It's, it's tangible. It's obvious. And meanwhile, if you're the guy who tackled a weird-looking character who may or may not have thrown kids in the river, which may or may not have yielded you know, some kind of bad outcome, does anyone even notice? Like, what would you brag about? There's nothing happened. How do you prove that you avoided something if nothing happened. And so there's all these kind of weird, ambiguous, nuanced issues that you have to deal with on the prevention side rather than the reaction side. And that was the bait for me to to get into it. Yeah, I mean, I would say counterexample. What if that weird looking guy has uh, traveled back in time and he's not sure which of the kids is Hitler? (laughs) It, It always it always ends with the killing Hitler baby. Yeah. Um. I think, uh, well, obviously, when you're the person downstream reacting to stuff, there's it's you don't have to fight fight the fight of getting uh, convincing people that your actions are necessary because you are there's a lot of energy around like, hey, this this house is on fire right now. Yes. But I wonder if something that makes it hard is that talking about things being upstream is is a little bit like time travel, uh, like a lot of the anecdotes in the book, which are sort of voluminous and uh, persuasive, are kind to a degree. It's a little bit like, hey, here's what we should have done before. And I wonder if one of the challenges is that can that can feel a little demotivating because it's like, well, we didn't. <laughs> we, we I know we would love to have done that, but we didn't. <laughs> and so as a leader, how do you uh create energy around that. I think creating energy out of the reactivity is very easy. Yeah, no that you you're you're dead on. It's like 
reaction is self-motivating. Uh, it's like if somebody's house catches on fire, as you said, like it's just no one's going to have like a, a talking session to, to debate whether or not uh, action is needed or what it's going to cost or does it pass a cost-benefit analysis. But then if you flip it around and you say, you know, how do, how do we make sure no one's house catches on fire in this neighborhood in the next year? It's like nobody shows up to that meeting because even the victory stories in the upstream world can be like curiously deflating. And my favorite example of this actually, Y2K, again, for people of our, of our generation. <laughs> right. <laughs> this, is, this podcast is going to be great for Gen Z. <laughs> like, just uh, they're be like listening to this being like, God, you guys are really dumb, like across the board. <laughs> so in, in, in the years leading up to uh, the year 2000, there was, of course, this panic about this bug in code. And there were fears that because of this bug, you know, the financial system would shut down and tra transportation systems. It was going to be this kind of global nightmare. And people were literally like renting cabins in the woods to try to survive the, the, the chaos and anarchy that was to come. And so for a couple of years leading up to uh, the millennium, People were investing just huge amounts of money in this. I mean, billions of dollars went into solving the Y2K problem. It was on the cover of every magazine when there were magazines. And uh, ultimately, what happened was, in a way, I think the, the ultimate outcome is best captured by this reporter who flew to New Zealand for one of the networks to be the first person, you know, the, 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 the kind of first second of the millennium would happen in the time zone where New Zealand is. So they're like, okay, we're going to be the first to figure out like what's going to happen. Will New Zealand be the first to revert to the state of nature? So the reporter, you know, flies 16 hours over to New Zealand at 1201, just a minute after midnight, the reporter puts their ATM card in a machine to see if it works. There's a drum roll. Everybody's kind of anxious and it works. It works. <laughs> uh, and then it was a very long and lonely flight home after that. So uh, so nothing happens. It comes and goes with a whimper. And I swear to you, like no more than 48 hours after uh, we get through this crisis, people are like, ah, well, that whole thing was a sham. What have people have been hectoring us about for a year? This was just a joke. This was just ginned up by some consultants to make some money. And, and that is the paradox of prevention, right? That, um, that the better job you do at preventing something, the, the, the less evidence there is that you accomplished anything, right? How do, how do the forces of Y2K prove that barring their actions, there would have been a civilizational collapse? And, and so, you know, I often run into people who, 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 whose memory of Y2K is that it was this kind of scam. And I'm like, no, you ding-dongs. This was a victory for humanity. This was us at our best. Like, we saw a problem coming. We took action. We put some resources against it. And by virtue of that, we can celebrate the fact that we anticipated and stopped a potentially big problem. Um, but, but that, again, back to the kind of curse of upstream work is is it's often curiously thankless work. You know, I wonder if there's actually a retelling of The Boy Who Cried Wolf, where, like, the first couple of times where he's like, it's a wolf, like, there actually was a wolf, and the fact that the people came to see what was up is why the wolf left. Ooh, <laughs> that's good. You know, and it's like, oh, actually, he was doing a good job the whole time. Because, because their presence had deterred the wolf. Oh, man, that's good. I'm going to run with that. That's, that's book six. The Wolf Revisited. Uh, first of all, I want to point out a uh, an anecdote from the book that I just think is hilarious, where um, 
the I don't I can't was it a World Series between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants mm-hmm. where they like the Giants I believe uh, essentially turned part of the base running path into like quicksand <laughs> <laughs> and I think they ended up getting away with this right um, they did it's hilarious to me that they just put a quicksand trap and I I just would love to hear. You know, I would love for like at, from second to third, there's just like an alligator pit, <laughs> like everything from pitfall, basically. Oh, pitfall. Now you're talking my language. God, we're, we're really on a theme. Did you know I um, uh, just to pay this off? Pitfall was my favorite game as like a, however old we are. We're a 10 year old or whatever. And um, you could do this thing where like if you got a certain score, you could take uh, a Polaroid of yourself with the score visible and yes. send it off to. Whoever made to Activision. Activision, yes, okay, and you could get like a patch, like a Pitfall Harry patch, right? And uh, I'm proud to say I earned that patch, Chris. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't want to brag on your show, but um, but yeah. Do you, where where is that from. patch today? I don't know. Actually, I would love I would love to find it. Maybe someday I'll find it. I feel like there is a sort of natural. Um, if we leave sort of systems unchecked and we don't think about this thing. I feel like we'll sort of tend towards reactivity. Um, that's just my guess about like the human condition that we kind of just will, the stuff that's upstream is a little more of like a pain in the ass. And if we have to, we'll just deal with the things that are on our plate today. It Have you thought at all about, is there a way to maybe frame our relationship to problems like almost in like a meta philosophy way that might jet, uh, point the momentum upstream, like to where like just as a natural condition, like on a day I wake up and I'm not thinking about stuff too hard, I sort of naturally think about upstream things as opposed to the the things on my to do list for the day. Yeah, I think there are environments where that is the norm, like uh, like a nuclear power plant, for instance. You know, it's it's like you you are always on guard um, to be attuned to any signal that anything is going wrong, and so I think like when when the consequences are sufficiently catastrophic, and that's not enough, by the way, and when the lines of ownership are clear as they are with a nuclear power plant, then I think you've got a recipe where the upstream curiously can be a default. I think parenting is a is a more ordinary version of that, where I think parents very naturally are used to this frame of mind where you're like, uh, in the moment, you know, I could give you the second bag of Cheetos because I know that's what you want, but I've got to think about, you know, what you're going to be like 20 years down the road. or And, and so it's like you make all these trade-offs for the sake of um, better outcomes and problems prevented in the long run. But, but as you say, I think like the more complex a problem is and the more constituents it has, the, the, the easier it is to default to the uh, equilibrium of there's no action unless there's a crisis. And I think that's pretty easy to see, like with government, for instance, where, um, I mean, even having just lost a million or two lives to COVID, we still haven't passed a pandemic preparation bill. I mean, you would think this would be the easiest bill in the world to pass. I mean, even from a downstream framing, uh, after the fact, we still can't get it done. And, And I think it's because of what you brought up earlier is just, when you have the option of not acting, it becomes a discussion and a debate. Like, um, you know, what is it worth 
for instance, to protect Miami from rising sea levels. And we're certainly well aware that's coming and there's going to be a lot of stuff, um, a lot of consequences of that. But, but, but where's the urgency? And, and so that's something I talk a lot about in the book is, is how do you create urgency for something that by definition is not urgent? you know, that we are trying to prevent rather than react to problems. Yeah. And it's like uh, you end up in these situations where, you know, obviously climate change is a big one on this list. And I feel if I had to predict what's going to happen with climate change, uh, first, my prediction is uh, both you and I will be dead and we don't have to deal with it. Uh, <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the goal. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my pr actual prediction is that it'll probably get kind of bad and then we'll probably figure some way out to sort of make it okay and it will cost billions and trillions of dollars and 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 we'll probably muddle through in a way that we could have avoided for millions or billions of dollars at this point in time or even let's say you know millions of dollars 20 years ago and it's interesting we we have this um in, in the annals of humanity's victories people forget um the ozone hole uh, which in a lot of respects is very similar to climate change in that, you know, so uh, so this was an 80s era issue where it really started to heat up, where scientists had observed that um, th there were spots in the ozone layer where, you know, the protection provided by the layer was starting to erode because of chemicals called CFCs. Uh, and, and the consequences were going to be, I mean, quite dire. Like there, there was going to be just a runaway epidemic of skin cancer and all, you know, destruction of farmland and all sorts of things. And, and within a matter of about 10 years, countries came together and passed a series of, of protocols that essentially eliminated the problem. And I, I saw some Yahoo on Twitter a couple months ago that was, that was trying to own the libs by saying, you know, remember when they caused that big stink about the ozone hole? Yeah, you don't hear that anymore. And then like, all of Twitter simultaneously piled on and was like, you know why? Because we did something about it. Because <laughs> we saw right. it. Uh, you know, it's kind of the Y2K <laughs> thing in a different guise. Um, but, but I think the, the depressing side of that tale was one of the reasons why success was, was relatively easy. I mean, easy is a hard word to use in a situation like that. It took thousands and thousands and thousands of activists over many years and in international agreements and what have you. Uh, but the, the fact is they did get to agreement. And, and one of the reasons why is it was a very selective group of people who were causing the problem, right? It was like you could point to 10 chemical companies and if you could get them to switch from CFCs to something else, like poof, the problem is solved. Well, climate change is very, very different than that. You know, it's like uh, there are 8 billion people on earth who are all relative contributors to this and there are, you know, vast economic interests uh, in play and so it's just it's a much harder um, degree of difficulty, unfortunately. But but I still take some solace in the fact that there have been these times in our history where we've done the unthinkable and we've come together and we've done the adult thing and and stepped up and prevented a big problem. Maybe we can do it again. I, I don't I didn't go back and review the books you wrote with Chip. But what I noticed was in Upstream, there's definitely more a sense of a uh, an individual author's voice because there's points in that book where you'll just kind of be like hey i mean <laughs> it's, it's very personal at times in a way that i like that i think a lot of times you don't get from whatever you call the genre that you're in like nonfiction. i don't know is it like social science or something like that like there, there can be a very dry 
template of like, here's my thesis. Here is a thing that happened in 1970 that proves my point. And now here's the like five bullet points you should remember. And now we move on to the next thing. But I felt like you had more of a presence in the like in the book. I don't know. Was that a conscious thing? Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it is a for, for, for people listening who, uh, you know, maybe are coming from the entertainment side. I mean, it is this kind of weird genre of books that um, that basically we're all kind of following in the wake of Malcolm Gladwell, who I think basically in, invented this other than certain famous business books like Jim Collins books and Tom Peters books and what have you. But, um, you know, I think what what all of us in this uh, weird little neighborhood are trying to do is just kind of help you do something in your life or in your business better. And and so we're trying to find what's the research that we can bring to bear to try to uh, give you some insight or, or give you a tip about something and what are the best stories we can muster to, to kind of showcase the use of those things. And, and so, um, you know, ultimately the test of whether I've written a good book is not whether it's enthralling or uh, it, it's whether it helped you with something like helpful is at the top of my like <laughs> aspirations as an author. I'll tell you what the measure of whether or not you did a good job writing the book. And that is the uh, audible.com reviews that I read when I went to download. The, the, actually, I went to audible to see who read the book on audible. Uh, Cause I was like, Hey, uh, I want to pitch myself to read the next Dan Heath book for audible. Turns out you read it yourself. Oh man. <laughs> That was my first time doing that. I yeah, and when I did it, I, I was just kicking myself for not doing the others because I just realized, like, I don't even know how how the voice talent did it. I mean, because I know how this sounds in my brain, and I know like what was a joke, and I know, um, you know, what point, it, and, and I just I don't know how they intuited that. Uh, so I want to read you my favorite review from audible.com. Oh dear God. Okay. Uh, which I will say is a, is a negative review, but it's, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's very entertaining to me. Uh, so the headline is not what I expected. Uh, it's two out of five stars, by the way, the vast majority oh. of reviews are quite high, but this is what I love about it. Uh, here's the review. Uh, I was expecting more like the made to stick type of book in upstream Chip Heath seems to be filling a liberal political agenda with every excerpt. That's what I love. It's it's your brother's oh, fault. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, all the all the bad stuff can be attributed to Chip. Right, had nothing to do with this book. Uh, his liberal Chip's That's liberal perfect. political agenda infused every word of your book somehow. Uh, but actually, so I'm glad uh, you brought brilliant. up the um, the uh, the ozone thing because. And actually, I wanted to ask you about this whole genre that you're in, which is like the Gladwellian. I feel like everybody in this world wants the book sales of Gladwell, but they want to be Michael Lewis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's interesting to me because I just read the whatever the last Johan Hari book, um, who I would say sort of is in this, in this world. Agreed. Yeah. Um, but he brought his last book was sort of about like what can we do in relationship to like the attention economy, mm. and uh, of course Johan Hari has his own <laughs> like checkered past with you know integrity in terms of he's had plagiarism uh, charges and all that stuff. But interestingly, he brings up the ozone layer as a. It, this is what whenever I read these books, I always like want to 
have an argument with the people writing them because he brings up the ozone layer at one point as an example of, hey, look, this is a time when everybody got together and solved the issue. Mm -hmm. And then as another time as a, this is how good we used to be, but we're not like that anymore. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I'm just like, wait, you can't have it both ways. It can't exist in both spaces. Um, Or maybe it can. Um, But my question for you is like, what is... I don't know how much reading you do of these other books in this world, but like, do you have a little bit of a radar for like, uh, cause I, you're assembling this, this massively researched book, which has like 300 interviews in it. Um, do you have a radar sometimes for like, Hey, this, this part, this part in this book, like, I don't really buy this or like this little c- citation seems like it's twisted slightly to fit this theorem. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 And I mean, especially, People listening have probably heard uh, there's been a bit of a reckoning in psychology where a lot of experiments that were, you know, the kind of things you would learn in Psych 101 in college have have since been um, have failed to replicate or have been undermined. And in some cases, just outright fraud involved. And, um, uh, you know, a a lot of the a lot of the wrote application of research to to writing you know where you you find a study um you you read the conclusion um people sitting in a room painted blue were 20 percent more creative than people sitting in a a room painted yellow and then it gets published on the web as you know creatives paint your room blue um you know that that whole chain of logic has just degraded a lot where i think um hopefully everybody is is consuming science with with a, a more skeptical mind and paying attention to you know how credible is this research and how many people were involved and uh, is there anything in my own lived experience that suggests the color of a room you know would have a profound impact on my creativity and e- so I think those are the the kind of new filters um, that are around now that probably weren't around 20 years ago which I think is a good thing you know it's it's like I I, I would say my mental model coming into Made to Stick was like if it was an academic research paper, like by God, it was it was probably truth. And now I'm a lot more jaded, where I I, I do a lot of tire <laughs> kicking, you know, before I'll kind of buy into something. Yeah, um, the it's almost like there there's this side effect of Michael Lewis Moneyball post Moneyball. There's this sense of like, hey, you have intuition about the world, but data can show us that actually your intuition is wrong. And then mm-hmm. now it's kind of like, you know what? Maybe your intuition is right sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's funny, like there have been so many back and forths, even in basketball, just about um, like free throws. Like th- does the hot hand exist? In oh, this basketball? is a, this is the perfect example. Yeah. So and it's like gone back and forth so many times now. Well, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but but I, I followed this for a while. And, and to me, this is like a perfect parable of like how things have changed where, um, you know, w- when I was taught psychology, this was taught as an, an example of the victory of science over lay theories, you know, the dummies out there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the the finding was that that sensation that basketball players get where they're hot, they're on fire, you know, get me the ball I can't miss uh, w- w- is just a total fallacy, right? It's just... Um, it's just like if you played roulette a thousand times, like probably you'd have a streak of 
of eight in a row that you won and and you would feel hot, but you weren't really hot. It was just, you know, an artifact of of random chance. Like that was the thought. And so it was like it was like kind of pulling status on basketball players. Um and, yeah, oh and, absolutely it was absolutely a like you jocks don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like you think you're a hot butt, but actually the math yeah. suggests otherwise. And then like uh, I swear to you, 10 or 20 years after this research came out, um, somebody figured out that they basically made a math error. <laughs> and right. if you um, if you if you kind of peel back the math error, what you what you have left are, in fact, you know, pretty compelling evidence that there is such a thing as a hot hand and that the jocks knew what they were talking about all along. And right. um <laughs> And and to me, that's like that. That's that's kind of a mirror of the way my own thinking has evolved. Where I, I would say, like at the margin, um, I'm more skeptical of you know your your median academic research paper, and I'm more trusting of people's experience that are close to the thing that I'm studying. You know what I mean? It's like if I have a choice between um, the frontline guy at the nuclear power plant telling me how things work versus um, you know somebody at Princeton that wrote. Uh, an observational paper about nuclear power plants. I'm probably trusting the nuclear power plant guy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but I but I feel like that probably wasn't where my head was at 20 years ago. Um, and so, do you like just what? I, I, as you like, sort of wander this earth, like, do, do you have ideas for, <laughs> you know, what you're writing next? Like, is there another book coming? Is there like, how do you sort of? like collect these sort of art overarching themes in your like thoughts and think like, Oh, here's a little spark for another book. Or I've always got like, um, I've always got like a half dozen, like one sixteenth baked ideas floating around. And, and, and so over the past two years, really, it's been a really painful uh, pa uh, period in the wilderness where I'm kind of trying to get momentum around one of these ideas and I keep changing from one to the other. And, uh, I can't quite catch fire with anything. It is is there any like inter entertainment equivalent of that? Like, do you ever have like multiple scripts going and you kind of just from my personal experience, I have like tons of like uh, stems of ideas for sketches or scripts, pilots, plays, all that kind of stuff that are just in a big text file. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I go back and I read the the thing and I don't remember why I thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I have all the details and I'm like, wait, why is this good? And the thing is, is that if I had seized the moment and made it when I had the 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 grasp on what I why I thought it was funny, it probably would have been funny um, because, you know, it reminds me of this thing about like that you're mentioning about like a guy who works at the nuclear plant. That's there, there's all these things that are sort of like um inarticulable about like somebody's chops, about someone's about that guy's ability to. Uh, even sift through his warning signs. Like maybe some things don't, there isn't like a thing you can write down on a piece of paper. That's like, Hey, when you get this, this means this, there's all this things about experience that come into play. And so it makes me think about like, when I read these ideas in my thing, I'm like, you know, in that moment I had not only what I wrote down, but I had like a whole bunch of other like amorphous feelings that made me think this idea was funny, but I didn't act mm -hmm. on them. So, and those things weren't captured. And and they were fleeting. Yeah. And they were yeah. fleeting, but actionable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I mean, one thing I've been struggling a lot with this cycle is um, 
it's like when do you just make the most of of the idea you've got versus floundering around and waiting for the A plus idea to come. You know what I mean? I well, I feel there. I feel like people have such varying uh, thoughts about that because to some people it's like you should, like they would say to you, like you know what, Dan, you should put out like these sort of like uh, featured blog posts about these ideas and just see which ones get traction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you should iterate on them when you get above a certain number of likes or whatever. Um, and then there's the other thought of just like, take one and you're a good writer. You will be able to create something out of it. And even there might even be a philosophy of like, Hey, you know what? Maybe your next book isn't the one that you love, but you have to do it to get to the next one, which you will. Mm. <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Where did yeah. where did that where did that one come from? That just I just made that up just now. <laughs> you should you should like trademark that one. That's good. My my book is going to be like uh, do the thing you're not interested to, to get to the next one. That'll be my like. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, th- there's a topic that there's a topic that I'm thinking about right now uh, where I kind of feel like I'm not personally in love with it but but could i somehow jujitsu that into an advantage because like like with upstream i had to fight with myself a lot like i had just really strong opinions but but the reader doesn't want dan heath's opinions you know the the reader wants uh insight and and something helpful for themselves and so there was like this this duel in a way but but i was thinking if i didn't really care that much about the topic i could probably do a bang-up job for the reader <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could actually like be a more effective um, arbiter of like what the actual like truth is. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Much like this reviewer on Audible.com, if if Chip Chip Heath hadn't been around <laughs> if Chip over your shoulder, hadn't botched upstream, it would have been great. <laughs> what can you describe like what your work style is? Because upstream is like like. As I'm reading it, I'm like, uh, first of all, again, it's a really good book. But also while I'm reading, I was just like, man, this seems like a lot of work. <laughs> like, what's your like system like? It was a lot of work, um, no doubt. But but enjoyable work. Like there's something about just the long, um, the long cycle of a book just really suits me. Like I like to just kind of marinate in, in something for a long time. That's that's why all the advice, like you were saying earlier, do the blog post, it just kind of gives me the chills. Like, I, I just like to be able to go into the cavern for two years and uh, think about stuff and, and carefully put my thoughts down on paper. But uh, in terms of like the week-to-week rhythms, um, I had a small team of, of researchers working with me, just like part-time folks, which helps keep me honest, honestly. Um, and so we're, we're always out, we're, we're talking to people, we're reading stuff, we're coming back and comparing notes and trying to figure out what do we think is true? What do we think is interesting? Where are we seeing patterns? You know, it, it, it's like, it, it really makes the light bulb go off when you see people in healthcare and business and social services, all kind of struggling with the same problem in a different guise, you know? And so you start to think, well, hang on a second. These people never talk to each other. So if someone in healthcare has figured out a way of approaching this that's useful, like maybe we can uh, export that to people in other sectors uh, in a way that they'd find useful. And so that's a lot of it is just kind of a long time uh, talking, uh, processing, analyzing, looking for patterns, eventually getting to the point of having something to say and starting with drafts and getting feedback on drafts. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like lots of little 
micro iterations in the spirit of this this long haul project. And like, just because I'm interested in this kind of stuff, like when you're actually writing the book, like, are you putting it in? Like, what is it going into? Is it going to like Scrivener or Word or something or like Word? I mean, you know, I, I'm a dinosaur. I uh, <laughs> yeah, just Microsoft Word, and it's 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 me in a coffee shop with headphones on, and you know, just just going. Wow, that's amazing. Um, also, uh, you're in North Carolina, is that right? Yeah, Durham. Yeah, the reason I bring it up is I want to get the if that place still exists where you recommended getting grits. In, I think it was in Raleigh. Oh man, oh yeah, Big Eds, Big Eds. Make make a make a run over to Big Eds and make sure to get the grilled biscuits with molasses. I think that's what I got. It was really good. That's so good, man. <laughs> so good. Uh, so you were here last time I saw you. you weren't you traveling with the uh, the Fifty Shades of Grey musical? Was that that's the occasion? right? That's right. I was passing through, making ladies happy. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that like? Where where was that in your in your you know retrospective uh, career highlights? Like was that was that a a great one or was it a? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that was a great one because that was a show that I would never have been cast in, except that the producers were friends of mine and they really believed in me, and. It got to be, it was just a great opportunity to do a show that was really funny. Um, and actually, the, the I would say the tangible thing that I learned from that show was, that show was very much in the spirit of like South Park or, it, it's just a sketch comedy sensibility applied to, uh, you know, a parody of a intellectual property that exists, right? But um if you're a Star Wars fan or if you're a Harry Potter fan or Star Trek fan, you have seen so many parodies of the thing that you love done by people that also love the thing that you love. Mm -hmm. So that itch has been scratched many times over if you're a fan of one of those properties. If you're a woman from 18 to 65 who loves the Fifty Shades books, you have never seen a, a comedy show that has the familiarity with the source material that you do until that show mm. toured. That's fascinating. And so that was, yeah, it was interesting to see a whole bunch of people who really didn't have that kind of sensibility speaking to their texts um, suddenly be in a theater being like, oh my gosh, I'm getting all of these jokes. So it was mostly women in the audience. Yeah, I would say it's probably 75% women and the 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 men that they had brought with them. <laughs> but I, I, I'm kicking myself for, for not seeing that show because, I mean, it's what a great idea. It's just an inherently funny idea. Yeah, and it was I, – th that I really loved. Like, I, I loved the ability to make a bunch of people laugh that just – who I think before that show would be like, I don't really like – you know, I don't watch comedy in that way, you know? And by the way, like, since that show, I, I still think that's an underserved demographic. I, I still think that's, I think that the, whatever the systemic things around sketch comedy mean, that it tends to cater towards, like, 18 to 30-year-old dudes is, mm -hmm. like, generally the audience for sketch comedy. But, like, sketch comedy as a medium, comedy as a medium doesn't need to have any demographic, like, built into its natural audience um i i and... smell a business idea brewing here <laughs> sketch for 
middle-aged ladies. (laughs) You'll love this. Just one other, one other uh, hit on 50 shades of gray. Um, So random house published that. And, and of course it famously is one of the most successful books of all time. And, uh, and the year it came out, all random house employees got like a sizable bonus that was directly attributed to that book. It was like a 50 shades of gray bonus. For wow! Every, I mean, that's how successful it was. So um, there are a lot of grateful people in publishing. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, and then, of course, people also got their made to stick in their upstream bonuses as well. Sadly, no, there were no, no bonuses <laughs> for them. <laughs> uh, well, Dan, thank you so much for you. You are going to be the first guest on the podcast. I will make sure yes. of that. It's all downhill from here, folks. <laughs> I'm really excited to see which of these one uh, sixteenth uh, ideas sort of bubbles up and becomes the one that you latch on to. If you have any suggestions, let me know. Yeah, I mean, and please, uh, actually, I would love for you to come back and talk about it, uh, you know, mid mid idea, post idea, whenever you want. Anytime. And I'm sure your audience is going to be hungry for more Clear Lake High School uh, <laughs> <laughs> nostalgic Actually, reminiscences. you know what's funny is here's, I do have an idea. First of all, I'm sure you get ideas pitched to you all the time of what your, ne- your next book should be. Uh, but and I don't know if you you probably don't care to write this book, but a forensic analysis of our year at Clear Lake High School and the people that came out of it in terms of achievement. I think oh, would be very it was, interesting. It was really a weird set of people. Uh, I mean, it, it, when I tell people about the high school, it was just like, it was like some kind of weird pressure cooker where y- you were just squeezed to be more of whatever it was that you were. Uh, and, and sometimes that was good and sometimes it was bad. Like in our year, we had um, the the guy who won like, the science fair of the world or the universe or, or whatever was like the highest possible class of science fair. We had, um, uh, we had a woman who won like the Ford supermodel of the year contest. Um, we had, uh, I, I don't remember if it was our class or the one adjacent, but we had someone called the clear Lake burglar that like broke into, <laughs> you know, 35 <laughs> homes and would like tickle people's feet while they slept. And also we had a, a lot of high achievement that was not reflected by like two years prior or two years later. Um, there's, I don't, we had a, a disproportionate number of national merit scholars in our mm-hmm. Um I, I, I'm just fascinated by that. Like, you know, we had someone from our class became the CTO of South by Southwest. Our friend Ron started an arts festival in Austin. Like there's a lot of just, there was a, like a, a, a kleptomaniac that was famous and was best known for uh, going into the pet store in the mall and literally stealing like a snake down his pants. <laughs> I love I love that these are the ones you've tracked. <laughs> it reminds me of the old expression, um, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Like that, that was basically the motto of our high school. You know what? That just to end on a great memory, that reminds me of Dan Heath at, uh, I believe, a choir, choir talent show singing, I just want to be... Your teddy bear <laughs> by Elvis Presley. Please I cut think. that out. Nobody needs that. <laughs> <in there. laughs> All right, Dan. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks a million, Chris. All right. That was my interview with Dan Heath. Once again, I'm giving away a free copy of his book at my community, which is at club.chrisgrace.com. You can send an email 
to podcast at chrisgrace.com. Let me know what you thought of the interview. Uh, of course, would love it if you subscribe, if you tell your friends, leave a review, all that kind of stuff. But uh, I hope you're doing well. I'm excited about this community I started at club.chrisgrace.com. I'm using a software called Circle that I think is... Uh, I decided to go with this over something like Discord or Slack or Facebook. It's got a lot of nice features. And you know what? It's uh, I think it's easier for somebody like a Gen, a Gen X like me to understand. <laughs> anyway, I hope you enjoyed this uh, conversation that we had. Um, I'm definitely going to have Dan on again because there's so many more things I wanted to talk to him about. Uh, not only his work, but also, you know, other Activision games that we love from the past. And I just think it's fascinating. The whole genre that he's in is a real, I really uh, chewed up a lot of those books. I read a lot of that whole Malcolm Gladwell, Blink, Tipping Point. You know, I would say adjacent to that is like Moneyball, um, that kind of world. And it has definitely been influential on the world of like our culture. It's been influential on sports. Like Moneyball was... Moneyball and Blindside were hugely influential on sports, the economics and and the application of economic principles to what was previously a quite subjective field. And of course, uh, you know, the pros and cons of that, which I think we talked about a little bit in that conversation. Anyway, you should go check out Dan's website. It's danheath.com. Check out his books, Made to Stick. Um, Switch was another one he co-authored with his brother Chip, which is also quite good. And uh, of course, the new one, Upstream, the quest to solve problems before they happen. And uh, go uh, get that. Oh, and you know what? Go get your free one at club.chrisgrace.com. Look for the giveaways section. I put a post there. You just need to leave a comment on there and I'm going to send one free copy to a lucky listener. Uh, I think that's it. I'm going to... South Dakota this weekend to do a comedy festival, the Snow Jam Comedy Festival. And then the weekend after that, I'll be at the Tower City Festival in Paris, Texas. So if you're in either one of those two towns, please say hello. I'll actually be in Houston in between. If you want to say hi there, send me an email at podcast at chrisgrace.com. And uh, other than that, have a great week. And uh, you'll be hearing from me very soon. show today's episode was edited by eric michaud the opening theme music was easy cooking by boom opera and this closing music is chinese hip-hop by alexander rufire you can email us at podcast at chrisgrace.com or join our community at club.chrisgrace.com and this is a production of invisible treats